Mark chapter 7, we're going to be in reading in verse 31. And let's stand together, please, for the reading of the Word of God. And please follow along in your Bible. Hope you have your Bible with you uh, as we begin reading in verse 31. And again, the Bible says, Departing from the coasts of Tyre and Sidon, he came unto the Sea of Galilee, through the midst of the coast of Decapolis. And they bring unto him one that was deaf and had an impediment in his speech. And they beseech him to put his hand upon him. And he took him aside from the multitude. Jesus takes this afflicted man aside from the multitude and put his fingers into his ears. He was deaf. And he spit and then touched his tongue. He was, had a speech impediment. Verse 34, it says, And looking up to heaven, Jesus looking up to heaven, he sighed and saith unto him, Ephphathah, that is, be opened. And straightway his ears were opened. And the string of his tongue was loosed. And he spake plain. Just that simple thing that he spake plain. I was thinking about that this morning. You know, you'd think a person who's had a speech problem for a long time would need speech therapy or something. But he immediately spoke plainly. Isn't that an amazing thing? Verse 36, And he charged them that they should tell no man. But the more he charged them, so much the more a great deal they published it. And were beyond measure astonished, saying, He had done all things well. That'll be the title of our message today. He hath done all things well. He maketh both the deaf to hear and the dumb to speak. Let's pray together. Father, please bless today as we study your word. Open our eyes, open our ears. Lord, help us to see, help us to understand. Lord, we pray that today we would come to the Word of God eager for the Spirit of God to take the truths of God and, Lord, apply them to our lives. So we pray you'd have your way in our hearts and lives. I pray especially today for those who are here that are not saved. God, you might open their hearts, that you might open their ears, Open their eyes, and Lord, help them to hear, to see, to understand, and to come to Christ. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. You may be seated. So we look at this passage uh, today. I want to I kind of focus our thoughts around three different parts or points of the passage. The first thing we're going to talk about is his travels. It's significant, the information it gives us about the journeys, the travels of Jesus. Then we'll see his touch. That was a thing that the man, these people who brought this man, they wanted him to put his hand upon him. And by the way, when Jesus touches you, things are different. We know that. And thirdly, we're going to talk about his testimonies. I said earlier, that is this, that he doeth, he hath done all things well. So let's begin by talking about his travels in verse 31. It says, and again... 
departing from the coast of Tyre and Sidon. Just to refresh your memory, you know, we've been on missions the last two Sundays, but the Sunday before that, we were in the previous text where Jesus went to Tyre and Sidon, and there was a woman there, a Syrophoenician woman, who came on behalf of her daughter that was demon-possessed. And there Jesus performed a miracle and healed her. So he's leaving that region in verse 31, departing from the coasts of Tyre and Sidon. He came unto the Sea of Galilee, where he spent so much of his time in ministry. But he didn't stop there. And he went through the midst of the coasts of Decapolis. So he's moving from a boundary. Tyre and Sidon is where Lebanon is now. It was on the very outskirts of where Jesus would normally go ministering to the Jews, and it was a Gentile territory. So he leaves a Gentile territory to the north and west of Jerusalem, and he comes down toward the Sea of Galilee, where Capernaum would be, and where he was before he went to Tyre and Sidon, but he moves to the east and southern part, beyond the Jordan River, to Decapolis, another Gentile area, and uh, we have a little, we have a map here just to kind of refresh your memory on your geography, uh, because I think it matters. These places matter. You know, you see uh, at the upper portion, right in the center, is the Sea of Galilee and Nazareth, where Jesus' family was and where he was raised. Down below, where the uh, you see the Dead Sea, and just to the left or west of that is Jerusalem. But if you go back to the Sea of Galilee, and there's over on the country of Tyre on the Mediterranean Sea on the outskirts of Galilee, but then it says he's going to leave there, come down toward the Sea of Galilee and through Galilee, but he's going to minister in the area known as Decapolis. And it's hard to see the colors, but that color, the red shade, are the, are the ten cities that made up the region of Decapolis. This was, these cities, uh, actually it was when the Romans uh, conquered that area about 65 years before the birth of Christ, and they made that a region, included those ten cities. Decapolis, Deca, as you know, would probably think, is where, like decade, it's ten. And polis is like a metropolitan polis, it's cities. It's a region of ten cities, and we're, we're most familiar with a couple of them. Philadelphia is one you'd think about, but that's not the Philadelphia of the, of the book of Revelation. But Gadara, look about halfway or two, two-thirds of the way up, Gadara. That's where that Gadarene demoniac was from that Jesus healed. And so Jesus, it's significant that he's not just focusing now on ministering to the Jews, but these are primarily Gentiles area. Tyre and Sidon, these Decapolis, these areas, which would be uh, not exactly we would be considered... There would be Jews there, but it's not a a Jewish region, primarily Gentiles. So both of these last two destinations, here's the point I want to make, represent Jesus reaching beyond the Jewish community, beyond Israel, and ministering in these, these Gentile areas. Thank you, guys. I appreciate that. And it's a reminder of this. The gospel is for all people. It's not just for the Jews. It's for all people. And the Jews themselves had a bit of a problem with that. There are several, I think five actually, places in the Bible where, uh, where it talks about Jesus being a light 
to the Gentiles. And that's not just New Testament, that's Old Testament. Isaiah used that terminology, light to the Gentiles. As a matter of fact, hold your finger here and mark, if you would please, and we'll come right back to it. But go to the right in your Bible to the next gospel, which is Luke. And look in Luke chapter 2. And I'm just going to briefly mention this, but I want you to see it in your Bible. In Luke chapter 2, Joseph and Mary had brought Jesus, the baby, to Jerusalem for the official dedication at the temple. And when they were there, now we're talking about Jesus is a child. And when they were there, in verse 25 of Luke chapter 2, there was a man there whose name was Simeon. And in verse 26 says that it had been revealed to Simeon by the Holy Ghost, by the Spirit of God, that he would not see death before the Lord's Christ, the Messiah, came. So he's waiting on the coming of the Messiah. And he took baby Jesus, held him in his arms, and look what he said in verse 30, 30. Simeon says, For mine eyes have seen thy salvation, which thou hast prepared before the face of all people, a light to lighten the Gentiles, and the glory of thy people Israel. I think it's very interesting that in the temple, before the Jewish community, this Jewish man said that Jesus would be a light to the Gentiles. And, and that just, again, underscores the fact that Jesus came not just for the Jews, but for the whole world. And as I said earlier, the Jews not only did not accept Christ's ministry, many of them, but they especially did not accept his ministry to the Gentiles. And if you look at the ministry of the apostles, uh, uh, the apostle Paul particularly, um, the Jews did not accept his ministry twice. I'm not going to turn to it today, but twice in the book of Acts, it says that uh, Paul was preaching to them and said that he was going to take the gospel to the Gentiles, and as soon as those words left his mouth, the Jews rejected him. They did not want, they did not want to believe that Jesus was the Messiah, and they refused to believe that, that Jesus would be as much of a Savior to the Gentiles as he was to the Jews. Nevertheless, we see in this passage, I'm back in Mark chapter 7, that the gospel was not just to the Jews. Matter of fact, this ministry of Jesus, I believe in Mark chapter 7, is like a pattern for future ministry that you see throughout the book of Acts and even into the epistles. And that was they were to take the gospel to Jerusalem, but then to Judea, the region of which Jerusalem is a part, but then also into Samaria and unto the uttermost parts of the world. So what we see here is the missionary spirit of Jesus. The same spirit that should be present in the Lord's churches. A missionary spirit to take the gospel to the regions beyond. Not satisfied with having the gospel for us and our family. Not even just satisfied to have the gospel for us and our church family. But the gospel is for the whole world. And so his travels represent that. So we ought to take that to heart. And it ought to be fresh on our mind. Having just had our missions conference a week ago. 
that the gospel is for the whole world. The gospel is for every person on the planet. Amen? God help us to do our part to fulfill that pattern that Jesus started. So we see his travels. The second thing we see in our text, and we're in Mark chapter 7, is his touch. The man that was brought to Jesus had two physical issues that probably were connected. He was deaf. He could not hear anything. He had a a speech problem, a speech impediment. He could speak, but he couldn't speak clearly. And they wanted Jesus simply to touch this man. Now immediately we think, why would this Gentile population, this place outside the borders of of Jerusalem, or, or, or Israel I should say, on the eastern part of the Jordan River, why would these people want know enough to bring this man to Jesus that he might touch him? This is the first time Jesus had been to this area. And the last time he would be in this area, as far as we know. And the answer is because Jesus' reputation had preceded him. Jesus had quite a reputation. But particularly, we know this, and I mentioned it earlier, that man in uh, the fifth chapter, I believe, of the Gospel of Mark, this demonized man from Gadara, he was from that region of Decapolis. Matter of fact, let's look at this. Hold your finger right here and go to the left just a little bit. Just Mark, and we'll see if we're right on the chapter we may not be. Mark chapter 5, verse 20. This man is converted. Remember the man. He was the man that was possessed with the devil and and he was converted and he was found sitting and clothed and in his right mind. But look in verse 20. And he departed and began to publish in Decapolis how great things Jesus had done for him. And all men did marvel. He was... He was set, passing the word. He was spreading the gospel. He was telling those people of what, he had, what had happened to him. So when Jesus gets there, they already know him. And they bring this man to him. It says in verse 33, we're back in Mark 7, he took him aside, took this man aside from the multitude, so he took him to a private setting. Now, you could just read over that and think, you know, maybe it was just a handful of people. We don't know how many people were there. But the Bible says that it was a multitude. Already in a place where Jesus had never been, there was a multitude. That word multitude could be, could be described as a throng of people, a crowd of people. They've gathered there. And Jesus, rather than making a spectacle of what he's about to do, to me this flies in the face of the way these so-called healing ministries do, right? He didn't want to be a spectacle. He took this man aside. He took him to a private setting. He wasn't going to use this, he wasn't going to exploit this man, and he wasn't going to, you know, aggrandize himself. He was, it would be a private setting. And notice what he did. He took him aside from the multitude and put his fingers into his ears. Jesus didn't always do things the, the same way, right? He puts his fingers into this guy's ear, and it gets more interesting. Verse 33, and he spit. Maybe that's why he took him aside. He knew there was women there, and they wouldn't like to see him spitting, 
right? So he spit on his finger, and then he touched the man's tongue. How would you like to have someone spit on their finger and touch your tongue? So this is what Jesus did. And, and, this, and it was unusual. It was different. It wasn't the way Jesus always did. And verse 34 it says, And looking up to heaven. Now Jesus didn't have to look up to heaven. Why would Jesus look up to heaven? To me, because he was visibly, noticeably demonstrating that what he's about to do, he's going to do depending upon his heavenly father. He's going to do it trusting his father to do it. This is not the only time we find this. When Jesus broke the bread and the fishes and fed 5,000, before he did it, he looked up to heaven. When Jesus stood outside the tomb of Lazarus, who had been dead for four days, before he commanded that lifeless man to appear in the opening of that grave, that cave, he looked up to heaven. He was looking in dependence upon his father, but he's also looking as a testimony to others. He wanted because God would work. And by the way, I don't think we ought to always walk around looking up necessarily or drive a car looking up. But the psalmist said this, I will look unto the hills from which cometh my help. I'm looking to God as my source. That's a good lesson for us. I'm looking to God. I'm depending upon God. He was a pattern, an example. That we go to God to help us. We go to God for the answers to our problems. And so he says then in verse 34, and I, and I don't know all the reasons for this and wouldn't pretend to, but it says he sighed. That's an interesting thing. You find that more than once in the Gospels. He sighed and saith unto this man, Ephathah, that is, be open. The word is an Aramaic word, Ephathah. The Aramaic language is the language of the Syrians. That's where Syria is now, the eastern part of that area, east of the Jordan River. It was a Syrian dialect, but it came the language of the Jews. So Jesus is using their language, their local dialect, Ephathah, which basically just means be open. And the Bible says in verse 35, straightway, immediately, his ears were opened and the string of his tongue was loosed. It had been hindered and he spake plain. He spake plainly. That's the transforming touch of Jesus. Isn't that a wonderful what Jesus could do? I never get over it. Amazed at it. What Jesus can do. Amen. And then the last thing is his testimony. Look in verse 36. It says, And he, Jesus, charged them that they should tell no man. Again, not the only time he did that. Why would he not want them to tell others? Why, if Jesus wants to get the word out, and he tells us to get the word out, why would he not tell them who he was or what he could do? And I think the, the most obvious answer is, the more famous he became, the more opposition he faced from the Jewish community. And he wasn't afraid to be opposed. But Jesus was on a strict, predetermined timeline. And he would, not give, he would not be taken until he was ready. He would, not be, he would not be tried until the time appointed of the Father. And so, 
these people, the very people that were, had this animus toward him, these people would eventually kill him. They hated him. They were never Jesus people. They hated him. But so Jesus, Jesus told people frequently, don't, you know, don't tell everybody. You don't have to tell everybody. But look what it says in verse 36. But the more he charged them, the more he told them this, so much the more a great deal they published it. You know why? They couldn't keep it to themselves. They weren't rebellious. They weren't rebellious. They were just, they, how could they not tell somebody? Look how, the, look how this man's life has changed. He can hear. He can speak. So they couldn't keep it quiet. And verse 37 says, And were, so much the more a great deal, they published it and were beyond measure astonished. I like that phrase. Beyond measure. Their amazement, their astonishment could not be Measured. It was over the top. We find this another place. Just flip a page or two to the left, Mark 6 and verse 51. It says, this is when he, this is when he spoke to the, the seas, the winds. They listened to him. He went up into the ship and the wind ceased. And they were so amazed in themselves beyond measure. You could not even measure. They wondered. Now, I, want, I mentioned this earlier and I want to mention it again now. Their amazement, the amazement of people in the Gospels. Now please just think with me about this for just a moment. Their amazement was almost always centered around some physical, tangible miracle. He made the winds to cease. He made the waves to stop. He made blind eyes to see. He made deaf people to hear. He caused the dumb to speak. These are all things that he did. He fed thousands with just a few fish and some bread. And, and people were amazed by that. And I think sometimes people have to have something like that to make them amazed. If God would only do this, then I would be amazed. If God would only, if I could see God do that, then I would be amazed. But here's something to remember. Most of those people who were amazed at what Jesus did, when he stopped doing those things, they stopped following him. Is that right or wrong? It's true. You know why? Because they were only fixed upon material, tangible, physical things. Now, as I stand before you today, I've never, I've never seen those kind of things happen. I've never seen him give physical sight to somebody that's blind. I've never seen him raise anybody from the dead. I've never seen him open the ears of a deaf person or give speech to one that's dumb. But to me, and I think many of you would feel the same way. I've seen him do some pretty amazing things. Is it, is it advisable? Would it be prudent if we could be as amazed at spiritual things as they were at physical things? And I would say absolutely. 
I was thinking this morning, meditating upon this passage, and I was thinking, I'm not going to call any names, but I was thinking about people in this very room today that I have seen their lives transformed by the touch of Jesus Christ. Not in a physical way, but in a spiritual way. Where their attitudes have changed. Their desires in life have changed. Their purpose for living has changed. Not because they read some self-help book and decided to reform their life. No, because someone beyond themselves touched them in such a way that it transformed their life. That's our story. That's my story. That's your story, many of you. And and I'm not trying to sound spiritual, but I don't think I could be any more excited about seeing a deaf person get their sight than I am about what He's done in our lives and what He's done in the lives of others. And to me, this is a warning to all of us. If that's what it takes to get you excited about Jesus, you're going to be on a spiritual roller coaster throughout your entire life and spend more days down in the dumps than shouting the victory because it takes something physical. He has to pay my bills. He has to heal my diseases in order for me to be happy. And I'm telling you, Jesus Christ and His gift of salvation is enough to make all of us be excited, I believe. If we, if we can't, and I'm, not, and I'm not just giving you my homespun philosophy, I'm telling you what Jesus said. Don't rejoice because the devils are subject to you, but rejoice in this, that your name is written in heaven. Yeah, we get sick. Sure, we have problems. Sure, we get the bad end of the deal sometimes. But I'm telling you, God's been good. To us. He's transformed our life. Regeneration is a miracle. It's not religion. It's a changed life. I see people who sit and listen to preaching as though they're listening to some lecture because it bores them, because there's not enough there to stir them, because they want to see something. I'll tell you what. You turn from your sin and trust in Jesus completely, and you see that you're different from one day to the next, and you'll be excited about it. I'm still excited about being saved. Amen? He transformed my life. He saved our family. He saved our children. We see children and grandchildren serving the Lord. I'm telling you, this is the greatest life there is. You'd be happier if you won the lottery. But to me, this is better than the lottery. This is real and it's forever. Amen? He, he, he said, well, if He would just provide for me, He does provide for us. He gives us strength. He gives us peace. He gives us joy. He gives us purpose. He gives us hope. He gives us victory. I'm telling you, He is the great provider. We see His testimony. Look what it says about Him in verse 37. They were beyond measure astonished, saying... He hath done all things well. He maketh both the deaf to hear and the dumb to speak. Nobody could do what he was doing. Nobody could. And you know what? We ought to recognize God's goodness in our lives. I don't think for a moment 
that our life ought to be built around emotions. I don't believe that. But I'll tell you, we have reason to rejoice in the goodness of God. Amen? And others need to hear. Others need to hear not how bad life is, but how good God is. Because God is good. I mean, if you've got a bunch of people who go to church regularly who aren't convinced that God is good, you're going to have a hard time selling other people on it. God's good. Amen? And that's what the, this was the last part of their testimony. We'll close with this in verse 37. This was what they said. He hath done all things well. Everything he does is good. We heard a great um, verse of scripture today in Sunday school about how God even makes the wicked for his own purposes. God can do that because he's God. And you may not understand it, and I may not understand it, and it may not fit into this framework that we've been given in this culture we live in, that um, if, if it doesn't make me feel better, if it doesn't make me look better, then it must not be good. I want to tell you, God is always good. And if God allows something that is painful, eventually that painful experience can benefit us and benefit others. God is good. And I praise God for that. I was thinking this morning about that song of Horatio Spafford's. We sing it often in our church. It is well. In the first part of that song, anybody could agree to. When peace like a river attendeth my soul. When peace like a river attendeth my way. I mean, when peace comes to me, isn't that good when peace does come to you every once in a while? But the very next phrase, when sorrows like sea billows roll, that's a whole lot different than peace like a river. Sorrows like sea billows. And sometimes peace does attend our way. And sometimes sorrows like sea billows do roll. But most of you know the story that the writer of that hymn, It Is Well With My Soul, first of all, in the great Chicago fire of 1871, his two-year-old son was burned to death in that fire. Not only did he lose his son, but he lost his wealth. His, he lost everything he had financially. This was an attorney, actually a lawyer. He lost everything. So two years later, after he lost his son, he sends his wife and his children across the Atlantic. And he's going to meet them there. And they shipwrecked. And all four of his daughters were killed. So as this broken-hearted man is traveling to meet his grieving wife, he wrote these words. When peace like a river attendeth my soul, and sorrows like sea billows roll, Thou hast taught me to say, It is well, it is well with my soul. 
If all we can get excited about, if all that we can praise God about is when things are good, there's something wrong with us spiritually. Deeply, terribly wrong. The world can do that. The world can rejoice when they have a financial breakthrough. The world can rejoice when they get a good report from the doctor. But this is a declaration of faith. He does all things well. It's a declaration of the goodness of God in good times and in difficult times. And somebody could say, well, how could, how could this event, the Horatio Spafford, his, the loss of his child, the loss of his four daughters, how can something have some benefit? And this is what I would say. 140 years later, here I stand, and his testimony is a help to me. It's well with my soul. When things go, you, you say, do you really believe God would allow somebody to go through something like that so some, somehow maybe their testimony would help somebody else? And I say yes. Amen? And maybe there's somebody watching you that needs to see that even though things aren't going your way, God is still good. And He's still on the throne. And He's still worth loving. And He's still worth serving. And He still deserved to be praised because He hath done all things well. This passage in Mark chapter 7 begins with the gospel of Jesus Christ for the whole world. Everyone needs the gospel. And it goes to this compassionate touch where Jesus changed the life of a person. The message of the gospel is not that it makes it where you never get sick again. The message of the gospel is not that you can always be wealthy and troubles will never come your way. That's not what the poverty-stricken people of Bangladesh or Pakistan need. The people who who try to make where they're only interested in the physical things that Jesus could do are missing the whole point of the gospel. The gospel is that Jesus came to earth to suffer and die for sinners. He came to die for my sins. He didn't just come to fix it where I never needed to see a doctor again. He came to fix it where I could be in Him I could be saved. I could go to heaven one day that my sins could be forgiven. The greatest touch, and I'm not just saying this to to try to take uh, responsibility away to pray for... I'm just telling you what I believe the Bible teaches. The greatest touch is not a physical healing. It's a spiritual healing. It's a transformation. And the promise that once we're saved, once a person gets saved, think about this. He never says you're never going to be disappointed. He never says you're never going to have problems. He never says that you won't have sicknesses. This is what he does say, though. Wherever you go and whatever you go through, I'll be with you. Every step of the way, every victory, every defeat, every heartache, every pain, every problem, every bit of confusion, I'll be with you all the way. 
Whatever life brings you, you're not alone. If you're saved, because Jesus will be with you. And when this life is over, we're going to go to be with him forever. That's the gospel. That's the message that people need to hear. Not, well, I don't, I don't trust God because he didn't, you know, make this better. He never promised to make all those things right physically. But he did promise to give you a peace that passes understanding, right? And joy unspeakable and full of glory. The gospel of Jesus is for the world, his travels. The touch of Jesus transforms lives. And the testimony is he does all things well. Now ask yourself this question today. If you're not saved, what are you waiting on? I mean, what, what, do you, what is it that's keeping you from turning your life over to Jesus? There are people in this room today that I've prayed for this morning. That God would somehow open your eyes and let you see what it means to be lost. How much you need to be saved. You say, well, will Jesus make me famous? Will Jesus make me rich? Will Jesus make me... No, I'll tell you what Jesus will make. He'll make you a new person. Right? And that's what everybody needs. Amen. He makes us new creatures. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things passed away. Behold, all things come new. And maybe here today, and you're, you, we could happen to any of us. It could happen to any of us that we start looking at the things that didn't turn out right or the way it didn't seem like God heard our prayer. And then all of a sudden, we just start questioning the goodness of God. I'm telling you, God is always good. Amen. If you don't believe that, you don't believe the Bible. God is always good. And he's deserving of our praise. Amen.